Business as usual is challenged every day. It's not about if disruption occurs, it's when. On this original show from Castellan Solutions, we're learning from the world's best leaders so you can be ready for whatever comes next. I'm Cheyenne Marling. And I'm Brian Zawada. Well, Shai, can you believe we've already wrapped up season one of Business Interrupted? I know it's gone by so quickly, and it's just been so exciting, an incredible journey so far. Throughout this season, we've spoken with some incredible leaders, sharing profound insights on a variety of topics. Brian, are there any favorite moments that stick out to you as you think about this season? I'm probably challenged by like limiting it to my favorite moments. Each of the five conversations I had, we had some great takeaways. And you know, going back all the way to the beginning when I uh, was meeting with James Krask and we were talking about the resilience movement, all the way to Melissa Agnes, which was kind of a nice bookend, if you will, to resilience management when we talked about crisis management and her crisis ready model and culture and getting down to the lowest levels of the organization. I mean, they're just great takeaways across the board. What about you, Shai? What were some of your favorite moments? Oh, there were so many. I loved hearing the stories from so many thought leaders in the industry. Many of them, I've been friends with them going on two decades and just hearing about their interesting stories on how they got to where they are today, how they stepped up instead of stepping down, how they really used a lot of their soft skills, their personal brand, and all their just incredible stories looking at Larry Naffo from 9-11 and how he was very involved and how he was challenged at that one point of his career, looking at Melanie Lucht at Carnegie Mellon, how they were incredibly prepared for COVID from a university standpoint, protecting their students, their faculty, and then Eddie Galang and how he's looking at the supply chain. He's right there in my backyard uh, in Long Beach and working for the poor Long Beach. So they've definitely been under scrutiny. Looking at Ajay Puthunvido and how he's been looking at how he really was challenged in coming into a position where they didn't need him anymore and how he reinvented himself. So really always thinking outside the box. There's just so many great favorite moments from this first season. Outside of some of these moments that we just talked about, there are some significant themes that emerged as the season unfolded. You want to start going through you know, some of your key takeaways for each of them, and we'll kind of play a clip from each to reinforce some of those points? Absolutely. So Melanie Luck, for instance, is the Associate Vice President and Chief Risk Officer at Carnegie Mellon University. Melanie spoke about prioritizing risk management over disaster recovery, which I really love about their program. The key point to pick up on is how important communication is in the overall process. Here she is talking about the way her team interacted leading up to and through the COVID pandemic. We actually started communicating with one another as a team, as our emergency preparedness team, and getting many of our stakeholders on campus prepared for what we anticipated was going to happen. So that actually started on January 22nd. Our executive director of health services alerted the community to what became a pandemic and it was primarily out of concern for our international students who were returning from winter break. We wanted to make sure that we were providing them with the care and support that they might need should they need it, but also to raise the awareness throughout the community that this was happening. It was shortly after that that we put our emergency preparedness team on notice and we started to send out regular communications within that broader team 
to just keep them aware that we're tracking this. And if we need to activate further, that they would then be engaged. And we actually did that in February. We activated our plan and we let everyone know on the team that they need to be prepared to begin working remotely if they needed to. But more so, we advised all of our business continuity plan stakeholders, of which we had at the time about 150 plans in our environment. And we told all of them that this is a good opportunity to review your plans, make sure that all of your information is up to date, be ready to activate. And if you need support, that that's what we were here to do. And as we activated our emergency operations center, that really became what it was designed to do. It became the hub of where we were communicating with one another, how we were communicating. We always ask ourselves three questions. What are you doing? What do you know? And what do you need? And it was in those very early days, we met on a twice daily basis to ask everyone on the team those same three questions so that we had everything that we needed and when we needed it. And I think having that early level of preparation, and I know many organizations did exactly the same things, but in a university environment, making sure that we were prepared to support what was really like a small city under such unprecedented circumstances was quite a a challenge. So a big part of the communication piece is recognizing your team members for the work they're doing, especially in the midst of challenging or stressful times. Here's Tara Davidson, Global Vice President of People at Castellan Solutions. Employees are our most important asset. We need to support them through this crazy time that we're going into or what a lot of people are calling the new normal, right? You know, do we have the right resources for employees to do their job? You know, is there EAP that they could reach out to if they're struggling with something on a personal or even professional basis? Are we telling employees how much they're valued, giving them the recognition that they need? And not all employees need the same type of recognition. Knowing how your employee likes to be worked with is hugely important for a manager's role. So what you're hearing is managers have an even bigger responsibility today than they seem to have in the past. It's always been there, but it's just it's more public. It's more, it's more known for folks that if I don't have a good relationship with my manager and I'm not getting what I need, I'm going to look yeah. elsewhere because there's a lot of choice out there right now. That's all heavy pressure to put on managers. And so we as leaders as well need to make sure we're giving managers the right tools and thinking that maybe as you do a, a review, a quarterly review, you're telling folks that they're doing a good job. The manager's on mentoring or coaching or working with employees or their employees, that it's not just, well, that's part of the job and you're supposed Mm -hmm. to be doing that. Like they need that pat on the back as well. The importance of building relationships is another compelling takeaway. Larry Naffo was the deputy CIO for the city of New York during 9-11. And in the midst of all the significant work that took place in the aftermath, Larry knows the importance of the relationships around him. Build networks where you will have people that will support you and help you. I can't think of anything in my career that I've done that was completely on my own that mattered. Everything that I've done of consequence involved lots of other people who were either supporting me, guiding me, alongside with me, and we did things as a team. 
And, you know, there really is no, there's no pure individual contributor anymore. That's just not a thing that is scalable. So you've got to, you've got to make sure that those connections and relationships are real and helpful. Along those same lines, here's David Landsman, Senior Vice President and Head of Global Operations at JLL Technologies. I'm a big believer in partnership with your suppliers. If you have a strong partnership with the suppliers in your supply chain, that when your emergency becomes their emergency or their emergency becomes your emergency, and they understand that you care about the long-term health and profitability of their company and not just the long-term health and profitability of yours, they are going to be more willing to work with you in times of crisis than someone that you squeeze every penny out of that you can. Yeah, you might be able to get a point or two of margin out of your, out of your suppliers, but is it worth it? Right. Because you need people that when the chips are down, when the world is on fire, like it has been for the last almost two years now, they're like, Hey, we'll take a haircut if you'll meet us halfway. You know, anything to keep the trains running, anything to keep the product flowing, anything to keep the businesses afloat. So we don't have to one lay off, which hurts everybody short, medium and long term. Okay. Or two shut down, which becomes a crisis that has to be managed. The best way to avoid crisis with your suppliers is by partnering with them. As these relationships are being strengthened, business resilience is increasing as well. For Melissa Agnes, founder and CEO of the Crisis Ready Institute, building relationships is part of making your culture crisis ready. There are what I've identified as the five hindrances of crisis ready. So if you are struggling to gain buy-in and support, if you're if you kind of get stuck at like some kind of a bottleneck or resistance. I would say identify those individuals and do your best to try to identify which of one or several of the crisis-ready hindrances are standing in the way. The five hindrances are avoidance, ego, fear, ignorance, politics. So which one might be at play? And combine that with the individuality of those humans. So are they Somebody who, in order to resonate with them, if it's fear-driven or if it's avoidance-driven, like or if it's ignorance, uh, so lack of, of true understanding and awareness, education, if it's emotionally bound, how do you connect with them on that emotional level to make your point and resonate it with it? Are they, like lawyers, for example, are very, like, they want to know case law and they want to know case studies and they want the facts that will show them that this is the right path forward. So is that how you're going to resonate with them? Is it very much speaking to the bottom line? This is why being crisis ready, these are the areas in the business that crisis of crisis ready culture outside of crisis management are going to give us a competitive advantage and going to increase our efficiency and our productivity and our X, Y, Z, right? So figure out what the hindrance is, who you're speaking to, to really resonate with them. And then the last piece that I'll say is conduct an exercise, do a simulation that, and I'm a strong opponent for simulations versus tabletop exercises and say, hey, we think we're ready. Great. Let's strengthen our skills. It's never test people. It's always strengthen our skills and test our program, test our capabilities, our processes, our procedures. And let's do that in a creative way so that, and I'll say kind of sidebar, even the most crisis ready organizations that I've ever had the privilege of working with, a simulation will show us the areas that need strengthening and need improvement. Working towards a crisis-ready culture is important, but it doesn't mean much unless you're willing to take action. 
Here's Gail Sassoni, Chief Operating Officer for a medical devices company, offering an executive perspective on risk management. Is your organization ready to do what it needs to to mitigate those risks? Many times on paper, I see people identify the risk, they identify what their mitigation efforts are, but they've never practiced going through the crisis, right? If you can not only identify and document what you would do, but then prove to the organization you have the resiliency, the the appetite to actually practice these crises or these scenarios, it's going to give you a good bit of insight as to where your gaps are, where your process gaps are, where your collaboration across functions may be. And then you can address that to even a greater degree. As we wrap up, Here's what we hope you gained from joining us this season. In fact, my top three takeaways is looking back at specifically Michelle Turner, and she had some great advice. Speak up. You are where you are for a reason. You have a seat at the table and make sure you are communicating as necessary. And I thought that's just a great message because sometimes we may get lost in not having that confidence in ourselves, and, and developing as a leader, you need to make sure that you're not only listening, but also speaking up as necessary. And I love how Larry Naffo indicated to really expand out of your comfort zone. You need to challenge yourself as you grow your career, and you're not always going to have all the answers. So don't beat yourself up. And then looking at Eddie Galang, Don't underestimate your team. Surround yourself with champions and really look at growing your team upwards as well. I thought he had some incredible advice in looking at his entire team structure and challenging them and challenging himself as a leader. What about you, Brian? No, those are great, Cheyenne. I'm going to give my three takeaways that it was a theme across really all five of the sessions that I did. And interestingly enough, they all start with the letter C. Culture came up over and over again, and the culture regarding you know how you're engaging with third parties, culture regarding how you're handling different crisis situations, and and really doubling down on culture and and working to understand it and fine tune your overall response or your risk management techniques based on it. My second C came up again over and over again was complexity. Uh, the people that I got a chance to speak to, they all kept coming up back over and over again. Let's try to remove unnecessary complexity from our business models because in doing so, we're going to make ourselves inherently more resilient. It's going to feel more effortless. And the third was the idea of being more concrete. We talked about scenarios, specific threat scenarios, plausible, severe scenarios, and being able to really role play and test against them. I say concrete because it made it real for people. And by being real it really reinforced the the boundaries, if you will, of what we're trying to achieve with resilience management or the resilience movement. Brian, I love the fact that you wrapped it all into three C's. And looking back over the season, finally, what is the number one thing you want to leave the audience with? All five of my guests talked about how difficult, if not impossible, it is to predict every issue coming at you and how there's a difference between managing the here and now and looking ahead and and working to predict what's next. So I think the theme of flexibility was something reinforced over and over again. Flexibility to identify and have the situational awareness to see what's coming at you, to be able to almost think through what are the different 
second, third order consequences that are coming. Those were the things that, you know, I heard over and over again. And in our profession, we oftentimes get so into the details and we get into kind of the, the recurring methodology of solving for resilience. But at the end of the day, we need to reinforce kind of that nature of, of being flexible in the here and now and in constantly looking ahead because we can't predict everything. How about you, Shai? You know, I'm going to steal a little bit of your thunder with situational awareness. But for me, it's looking at the thought leaders and how they develop their careers and that hard skills is not always enough. You can have all the hard skills. You can have all the experience in the world. But it really came back to me with a common theme of the soft skills. You need to have those soft skills in order to recognize opportunities, in order to challenge yourself, in order to grow as a professional within your career, and, and also to look at how to improve your program so it's more actionable. So all the industry leaders that I had an opportunity to speak to this season, they really emphasized and drove home to me that those soft skills, the emotional intelligence, to be able to communicate across the entire organization, to be able to influence situational awareness, to be able to understand the situation around you and to also navigate and to um, be aware of your surroundings, not just when the event is happening, but also as you look to create the program that's going to work best for your organization and understanding how the culture drives the program as well. And the third one is really being a change agent. You need to be able to grow and not stay stagnant in your career. You need to challenge yourself, step out of your comfort zone. So for me, those soft skills, you know, you can have all the hard skills you want, but it really comes down to having those soft skills to champion forward, to grow your career and to really benefit the program that you have. I'm glad you brought up soft skills because if you think back, Shai, when I think it was probably what, nine to 12 months ago when we did a, a study that you sponsored around key lessons learned from COVID-19, soft skills came up over and over again. And even in one of my guests, uh, Gail brought up from a soft skills perspective is holding people accountable in the organization, meaning the resilience professional hold the organization accountable to making good decisions when it comes to resilience, being assertive, strong communications. Your study reinforced that. And I think collectively our guests talked about that quite a bit. So I think that's spot on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Business Interrupted. I'm Cheyenne Marling. And I'm Brian Zawada. To get more insights and resources, please check out the show notes or head over to castellonbc.com.